Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled Improving Patient Outcomes in Advanced Biliary Tract Cancer, Evaluating the Promise of Immunotherapy plus Chemotherapy Combinatorial Approaches. To access the full program and supporting materials, please visit the activity URL in the episode description. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Merck and Company Incorporated. I'm Dr. Richard Finn from the Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, where I'm a professor in the Department of Medicine in the Division of Hematology Oncology. Our first session will take a look at the rationale for including immunotherapy-based combination therapies in the treatment of biliary tract cancers. Biliary tract cancers are a molecularly diverse group of diseases as well as anatomically. We think of these as intrahepatic, then those that occur at the entrance to the liver or the hilum or a Klatskin type tumor. Then there are extrahepatic biliary tract tumors, cholangiocarcinomas, and often, though it is a different entity, but because of its anatomical relationship, often gallbladder cancer is included. The only way to cure biliary tract cancers is really with a surgical approach. Unfortunately, most patients are not candidates for surgery at the time of their diagnosis, often because of an advanced stage or anatomic location. Liver transplant is being considered in a subset of patients, but by and large, most patients will be candidates for systemic treatment, given that a curative approach is not an option. Historically, the standard of care has been gemcitabine and cisplatin. There's been many efforts to improve on this with novel agents or with triplet combinations with other chemotherapy agents. None of those were successful until the recent data with immunotherapy combinations. We have had some exciting advances in second line with other chemotherapy regimens and targeted therapies specifically for patients who have IDH mutations or FGFR2 translocations. Gemcitabine and cisplatin with dervalumab is now FDA approved. And we also have data with pembrolizumab in a similar combination that has shown positive phase three results. The rationale for immunotherapy is fairly similar to other tumor types. For one, many bile duct cancers do develop in the context of an inflammatory milieu. Often this arises in the context of chronic cholangitis. And while single agent immunotherapy has not shown definitive improvements in overall survival, we have seen single agent response rates of around 10%. We have seen in early phase studies and in other tumor types, such as lung cancer, that chemotherapy can synergize with immunotherapy to improve outcomes without having distinct biomarkers to select patients. We do know that there is an increase in PDL1 expression in a subset of bile duct tumors, and there is a high density of tumor infiltrating lymphocytes in a subset of tumors. And these things have been hypothesized as being associated with better responses to immunotherapy. However, things like a high tumor mutational burden do not occur too frequently in bile tract tumors. However, with the rationale that there's a high unmet need for these patients and the potential synergistic effects between chemotherapy and immunotherapy has set the stage for the phase three studies that we will talk about in our next section. The first study which has led to FDA approval is the Topaz-1 study looking at dervalumab in combination with GEMSYS versus placebo plus GEMSYS. The primary endpoint of Topaz-1 is seen here. 
there was an improvement in overall survival from 11.5 months in the control arm to 12.8 months in the combination arm with a hazard ratio of 0.80 or 20% decrease in the risk of death. In fact, the magnitude of benefit seemed to increase over time with a two-year survival rate of 25% in the combination arm versus 10.4% in the Gemsys alone arm. And when we look at secondary endpoints such as PFS, this was also significantly improved from 5.7 to 7.2 months as a ratio of 0.75. And objective response rates were improved from 19% to about 27%. However, median duration of response was relatively similar with 6.2 months versus 6.4 months with Dervalumab. However, it's important to note that when we look at the PFS curves, there's clearly a plateau that occurs with a subset of patients getting long durable disease control. In this study, patients were randomized to Gemsys plus pembrolizumab versus Gemsys alone. This study differed a little bit in that patients in Topaz 1 received Gemsys only for eight cycles, where in Keynote 966, patients stopped cisplatin after eight cycles in both arms. However, they were allowed to continue gemcitabine per the investigator's discretion. Similarly, we see an improvement in overall survival, the primary endpoint for Keynote 966, with an improvement from 10.9 months to 12.7 months, a hazard ratio of 0.83, which was statistically significant, translating into a 17% decrease in the risk of death with the addition of pembrolizumab to Gemsys. At the primary analysis for PFS, the hazard ratio was 0.86. However, this was not statistically significant. With further follow-up, there was no real change in the hazard ratio for PFS, and the medians did not separate significantly. Objective response was very similar between both arms, 29%. Now, the control arm here performed very well, better than we saw in Topaz 1. However, the duration of response was quite different, 6.8 months versus 8.3 months with pembrolizumab. And at the end of the day, we now have two regimens that have shown significant activity in the frontline setting in improving overall survival. We'll discuss the safety of these regimens in the next session. When we look at the safety profiles of these regimens, there's really no surprises. We see the typical chemotherapy type of side effects that we see with Gemsys, which includes bone marrow suppression, neuropathy, fatigue. And in both studies, with the addition of the PDL1 or PD1 monoclonal antibodies, we do see some increase in immune related adverse events as expected. Overall, when we look here at the Topaz 1 data, we see fairly similar treatment-related adverse events and grade 3-4 treatment-related adverse event frequencies. The death rate from adverse events is low in both arms, as well as discontinuation due to an adverse event, very similar between both arms. With pembrolizumab, a very similar story. A low incidence of death from treatment. However, grade 3-4 treatment-related adverse events, as well as all grade adverse events, are very similar between both arms. And keeping in mind that the majority of these events in both studies is driven by chemotherapy-related toxicities. Discontinuation rates in Keynote 966 were higher in both arms. However, fairly similar, slightly higher with pembrolizumab. The rate of immune-mediated adverse events is very similar in these studies in Topaz 1. Patients continued on chemotherapy for eight cycles and then continued on maintenance dervalumab. Certainly, many patients develop cumulative toxicity, and maintenance dervalumab offers a chemotherapy-free interval. 
In Keynote 966, patients stopped cisplatin after eight cycles and continued gemcitabine with the discretion of the investigator. Continuing chemotherapy, specifically gemcitabine, can often be well tolerated. And this should give us confidence that adding immunotherapy to chemotherapy is manageable. Certainly, the side effects we see with IO in this disease is really no different from what we see in other diseases. The most common things tending to be hypothyroidism and rash and itching. On the next session, we'll take a look at factors that may impact our selection of these combinations in patients with advanced biliary tract cancers. We've discussed that Topaz 1 and Keynote 966 have generally given very similar results when we look at the trials. The trial designs were slightly different, specifically in the population that was accrued as far as region of the world, as well as the duration of chemotherapy, specifically in Topaz 1, patients receiving Gemsys for eight months. And in Keynote 966, patients could continue Gemcitabine longer than eight months per the physician's discretion. And then again, the majority of patients did have an elevated PD one score. Needless to say, patients with other systemic autoimmune disorders have relative contraindications to the use of IO, and therefore we need to think about using these drugs and the relative risk-benefit in those populations. However, both studies included all types of biliary tract tumors, including intrahepatic, extrahepatic, and gallbladder cancer, and the benefit was very consistent across these subtypes. When we think about biliary tract tumors, there has been a correlation between the development of these tumors and ulcerative colitis and primary sclerosing cholangitis, and therefore some pause needs to be given to using these drugs in those populations. Importantly, there was no biomarker that we've identified that has helped us identify patients who benefit more or less from the use of pembrolizumab or devalumab in this disease. We've looked at pd one expression and certainly high tumor mutational burden or MMR deficiency would support perhaps the use of single agent IO, but both of these observations occur with low frequency in these tumors. However, molecular profiling is important for these cancers because we now have approved drugs for several alterations, IDH1 mutations, FGFR2 alterations, BRAF mutations, NTRAC mutations. There's evolving literature on the importance of HER2 amplification and drugs that have been used to treat a subset of patients who have that alteration as well. But needless to say, at this point, given its approval, Dervalumab and Gemsys would be the appropriate frontline regimen for most patients unless they have a contraindication to the use of IO or one of the chemotherapy agents. Presumably, Pembrolizumab and Gemsys will be approved in the future based on the positive results of Keynote 966. And both of these regimens will be appropriate choices for most of our patients given that they have comparable improvements in overall survival and safety for both regimens is fairly comparable. In the next session, we'll discuss how to improve quality of life for our patients with advanced biliary tract cancers once they start on their frontline regimen of IO and chemotherapy. Advanced biliary tract tumors are incurable. Our goal is to improve survival while maintaining quality of life. We've seen that the addition of immunotherapy to standard chemotherapy does not significantly affect toxicity. While we do see an increase in immune-related adverse events, these do not occur at prohibitively high frequency or high grades. 
Typically, I see patients on day one of their cycles, which would be an every three-week interval for patients who are at higher risk for toxicity or having problems. Seeing them on day eight is reasonable as well or more frequently as indicated. Most of the toxicity will come from chemotherapy. Therefore, it is important to be proactive, watching for neuropathy, managing GI toxicity, watching for bone marrow suppression, and adjusting chemotherapy dosing. Patients with bile duct tumors do tend to get infections, and they require stents and drains, and this often becomes a bigger problem than managing treatment toxicity. Managing immune-related adverse events, similar as in other diseases. Certainly, grade 1 toxicity can be monitored closely. Grade 2, we could consider holding the immune checkpoint inhibitor until that improves or treating the toxicity such as for rash with topical steroids or starting thyroid replacement as necessary. As we get into the higher grade toxicities such as grade 3, grade 4, we need to be a little more concerned about severe toxicity and long-term side effects. We would definitely hold the immune checkpoint inhibitor and initiate high-dose steroids depending on the type of toxicity, perhaps a biopsy would be indicated, such as if a patient had worsening liver enzymes without any other indication, or if they had severe diarrhea, sometimes getting GI involved would be appropriate for significant toxicity, and fliximab should be considered as well. If a patient has grade 4 toxicity, we would consider discontinuing immune checkpoint inhibitors permanently unless these are specific endocrinopathies, which can be fixed with hormone replacement. We have reviewed the data that has indicated that frontline IO and chemotherapy is now the standard of care for most patients. Molecular profiling is critical as we do have approved options for patients with defined genetic alterations, especially in second line. And we should always have a plan in place for our patients should they have disease progression, but some light at the tunnel for this disease. And hopefully in the future, we'll see further progress. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening. Please visit the activity URL in the episode description to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.